Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pod bless everybody and welcome to another episode of Other People's Podcast, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Today's special guest is Jesse Thorne, host of NPR's Bullseye. On this show, Jesse hosts in-depth interviews with brilliant creators, culture picks from our favorite critics, and irreverent original comedy. Jesse also hosted a 10-part series called The Turnaround, which features conversations with prominent interviewers about their careers and their craft. You'll hear Jesse speak with Larry King, Terry Gross, Reggie Osei, Katie Couric, and so many others. This series had a special impact on me when I started podcasting, so for people looking to gain knowledge from expert interviewers, I highly recommend checking this out. In this interview, we cover ground about Jesse's career in podcasting, his podcast network Maximum Fun, his 10-part series, The Turnaround, and of course, we chat about his dope show, Bullseye. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Jesse Thorne. Jesse, what up? Oh, not much. Just relaxing in my own studio, being interviewed. (laughs) Bro, this is pretty baller right here. This is like... I I am glad you were the first person ever to characterize (laughs) this studio as baller, because I definitely bought this studio on Craigslist. (laughs) I mean, this is like the most baller podcast setup. This is like rapper swag. Again, the time. Thank you very going. much. Well, technically, it was it was not rapper swag. I bought it from a man who who ran a Pacific Islander R and B label. Um, <laughs> that was not a joke. That is actually who I bought this studio from. <laughs> that was not a weird thing that I was doing that had no punchline. That was actually where I actually bought this studio from. There, there we go. Just to clarify, yeah. there we go. Well, uh, welcome to OPP, which stands for Other People's Podcast. And I want to first, this is a very, very special uh, episode for me on the show because, number one, um, there's two podcasters I think had a humongous impact on me. One was Guy Raz mm-hmm. and one was you. Mm-hmm. And OPP was inspired by the turnaround. you like a real Dorkatron is what you're saying. 100%. <laughs> your, yeah, okay, good. And I, I was put on to your podcast. Someone told me I live in New York City. Someone was like, you would love this podcast, this guy, Jesse Thorne. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll check it out. And I just fell in love with it. And oh, then I got the idea of, you know what? I'm going to keep interviewing interviewers. I'm going to interview podcasters. Well, you know, it's the only successful thing I've ever done. So No, no, uh, not at all. I'm grateful. <laughs> I should have put a business model on the front end <laughs> rather than, yeah. But, yeah, thank you. No, ma- major inspiration. How are you, man? I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, uh, I am I just finished interviewing H. John Benjamin for my NPR show, Bullseye. Yeah. Like 15 minutes ago. It's always nice to talk to him. He's a real favorite of mine. You're a busy man. Where are you from originally? San Francisco. Okay. What was it like growing up in SF? It was really great. I would never, I mean, I, you know, on Bullseye, I interview creative people and, you know, more often than not, they're a big part of their creative life was wanting to get away from wherever they were raised, whether it's because it was boring or scary or whatever. And um, I think that I have, 
I, I had a conversation once with my old therapist where I was like, like, it seems like I care too much about the place I'm from. Like, it seems like a problem. Um, See, and he, that's, that's, that's a rapper in you. I, for, oh, for sure. <laughs> for, no, I relate to that very deeply. <laughs> me and, me and the, the most legendary graduate of my high school, Rap and Forte. But like, I think what basically I came from two loving but broken homes, mm-hmm. uh, my mother's house and my father's house. Where it's also, and it's also a very deep source of emotional strife for me, frankly, because the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, I was just, I was just watching Tracy Morgan's new show, uh, The Last OG. And part of the premise of this show is that he gets put away on a drug charge and comes back 10 or 12 years later to a Brooklyn that's completely transformed. And that kind of transformation happened to, and he feels kind of cut out of his own life in a way. Yeah. Um, and I've lived in Los Angeles now for 10 or 12 years and have never entirely felt at home here. Um, but it's odd to realize that like the place where you feel at home is not a place that exists anymore. Right, right, right. No, I, absolutely. Well, where did your love for media come from? And, and how did it, all that kind of happen in your life? Yeah, I mean, I I went to arts high school. Um, so basically, I had gone to private school through middle school and was uh, always, uh, especially in middle school, kind of the, the scholarship kid. And I didn't, I know after middle school, I no longer had the grades to continue to be the scholarship kid. Um, like they were like, well, if, if we wanted a smart kid with bad grades at at the very least, we would pick a person of color from a struggling inner city school or whatever, you know, um, to give, to give uh, full tuition support to. Uh, and so I, I went to arts high school because it was the public school that I could get into that I wouldn't be in physical jeopardy at, (laughs) which was not true of my local public school, like the one in my neighborhood. So um, and I did acting and I never really wanted to be an actor per se. Um, although it was a lot of, you know, focused, dedicated training for a guy that didn't really want, just didn't want to get beat up. Um, but I did always love, um, performing and especially comedy. And so when I went away to college, I was doing improv and I started a, College radio show mostly because and where, where'd you go? So I didn't know. This is at UC Santa Cruz. Yo, genius school by the way. A lot of geniuses come from there. Santa Cruz is like one of those colleges where when you're listing graduates, uh, you have to leave out the word graduate because most of the famous <laughs> people didn't graduate. Um, Attendees. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think a couple of uh, there's a couple of SNL people that attended uh, Santa Cruz briefly, but yeah, like I, I, I mean, I just I think I'm just that age where. Uh, I'm just barely too old. I was born in 1981, just barely too old for it to have been uh, for making films to be accessible. Yeah. Like video cameras were still, it was the first prosumer, like real prosumer video cameras, but they still cost $2,000 and I didn't have $2,000. So when I got into the radio booth and I was like, wait, all we do is like move this slider up. Like, yeah, I can do that. Like, let's go for it. And so I just kind of recruited my funniest friends 
um, and uh, started a show. And honestly got into interviewing because we did not realize how hard it was to write an hour of material every week. Um, like we had been writing material for the show and we're like, we can't do this. How could we possibly generate an hour's worth of material every, and we're like, well, if we do an interview, that takes up half an hour. (laughs) So we just started emailing people. How was your interviewing style back then versus your interviewing style today? I mean, I, I had two great co-hosts in Jordan Morris and Gene O'Neill. And so a big part of what we were doing was... I mean, a, a, a really great advantage was if I didn't have anything, one of them did. So we would be on the phone because no one was ever in Santa Cruz. I mean, the number of people that we interviewed in Santa Cruz is like four in the five years <laughs> that we did in Santa Cruz. But um, we'd be on the phone with somebody and we'd be kind of like hand signaling to each other. Like, I got something, I got something, I got something. Mm, okay. Um, and I think that when you're interviewing, probably one of the hardest things is realizing that you are responsible for doing something, even if you don't have anything to do. Like if there's nothing, there's no question in your head, you still have to talk when the other person stops talking. Uh, cause otherwise people think their car stereos are broken. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I think having three of us in that room, even, even though I, you know, I was mostly doing the kind of like hosty stuff, um, took the pressure off a lot. And it, I mean, to such an extent that when I, when, jo- when Gene and Jordan graduated and moved down here to Southern California and I was still doing the show, there was an entire summer where I was just bringing in friends to co-host with me from the Bay Area, like acquaint, not even friends, acquaintances. Um, but we actually, I was just thinking back to that, to that summer, that one crazy summer. Yeah. Uh, and I had uh, W. Kamau Bell came and uh, did an interview with me. Who now has a show on CNN and did had a great late night show on FX. Um, Al Madrigal, who's who's on the Daily Show for a long time and has worked in a thousand things, is a brilliant stand up comic. He came and did it with me. Um, it, it's kind of funny. Like uh, one thing about San Francisco is. Um, it's a great comedy city and it's a great feeder city for comedy. So like that, I was just inviting the funniest people I could think of who lived around. Um, some of them actually became successes, but yeah, like I, I was, I was just like, well, apparently in this one, they'll just let you write papers about rap music. So I guess that's what I'm majoring. Sold. In. Yeah. I, I don't have to memorize any lists of anything. That was the other thing. I didn't want to have to memorize any lists of anything. I was gonna say you have like that like po- that podcast Rick Rubin vibe. Yeah, <laughs> you like the Rick Rubin of podcasting. That's a very very kind thing to say. You were mentioning after college, yeah, that uh, you know you got into this college radio show. How did Bullseye come about to become? It was kind of a it was a little bit of a sad story, wherein I graduated from college, didn't have anything else to do, and kept doing my college radio show. Yeah, like it wasn't like I kept I didn't keep doing my college radio show thinking I'm going to transform this into an international force or something. Uh, It was more like I just was scared to stop because I didn't do anything else. And I was underemployed for uh, the I mean, until I moved to Los Angeles. So living in San Francisco, that'd be like five years where I was like just barely making enough money to pay rent. Um and uh, and I just kept going to Santa Cruz to do my show. And then eventually I, I, I was driving this uh, messed up El Camino and it was like a little scary to drive over the hill. So then I, I like got it together to get 
a, like a 10 year old oh, Subaru. You had, you had a, or, uh, El Camino? I've had two El Caminos, thank you. Wait, with the, with at the, the time, I had an El Camino. the car with the pickup in the back? Yeah. Yo, the, the Ford, the road? Yeah. I think <laughs> I, I had it in more of a, I would say I had it in more of a DJ Quick idiom than a <laughs> Conway Twitty idiom, but yeah. Oh, Conway Twitty, um, nice. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, I basically just kept doing my show. And what happened was, um, and I was getting sadder and sadder. Uh, although my college radio station was actually a pretty sizable radio station in a, you know, mid-sized market actually. But, um, I, I got heard by, I got heard by a programmer at the local NPR station in Santa Cruz. He said, would you want to run my, your show on our station? I said, yes, forgetting to ask if they would pay me. And, uh, and the big change for me of that was they had a board operator. So at the college radio, there was no one to run the board except for you. So yeah. somebody has to be there by law because if there's, you know, if there's an emergency alert or whatever, somebody has to physically be in the radio station running that board. So on college radio, that was me while I was hosting the show. In the NPR station, there was a guy there. There was an engineer or whatever. So I could send them a CD of the show. So I started making it at home, which saved me the four oh, hours wow. of driving to go back and forth. From, it's too nifty. Yeah. Um, so I sold my car to buy the equipment to do that. They were roughly, they were each worth roughly $1,800. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've just, I've literally done the show every week since I was 19 or 20. Wow. And I'm now 37. So I was with public radio. I, I ended up with public radio. I was a very early podcaster in 2004. Um, and I ended up with uh, Public Radio International for a few years and then uh, kind of went and had a meeting with NPR and said, hey, guys, I got this show and um, I think it could be, I think it could be more than what it is right now. Uh, and would you be interested? And to my surprise, they said yes. And I've been with NPR now for something like five years. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I mean, in the meantime, I realized that that is not a way to make a living at all. Um, which was fine before when I was just me because I was used to being poor, but then eventually I like got married and had children. Uh, so sort of in parallel to that, I moved down to LA in 2007, I think. And uh, in parallel, I kind of built up this audience-supported podcast network around what was then called The Sound of Young America and is now called Bullseye. Yeah. Um, basically as a way to just try and get together. The number in my head was 1500 bucks a month because that was about what our rent was. And I was already living with my wife then. And it was like, well, I know I can eat for 250 you know, I, I, I can, I, it, we're each paying 600 or $700 a month in rent, right? Uh, go through the list. And I'm like, if I got 1500 bucks a month, I'm not going to die. You You're know? Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, when you have kids and stuff, you actually, and, and when you have to have like employees or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, like you walked into a, st I now have 15 people working in here or something. It's like when you become a boss, oh, you know what I mean? I'm a terrible boss. I apologize <laughs> to Laura right now. Um, who's running the board. She's our senior producer. How did the idea for uh, the turnaround, which is a humongous inspiration uh, for me, where did the idea come about? And, and how'd you put that into action? You know, in some ways, I think I, you know, I just described this crazy career path. And something that you will notice about it is that I never had a job or took a class in the thing that I do. Mm. So all of it 
is essentially, I mean, I, I interned for a little while on a radio show in the Bay Area called West Coast Live that doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, I got some experience from that. But that was mostly, you know, r- running cables and uh, going to pick up the, uh, the cold cuts. Yeah. Um, and so basically almost everything that I have learned to do in making my show has come from me making it up or sort of reverse engineering it. Mm. And I decided to do The Turnaround, which is a show where I interview interviewers, because I thought, I could, combination of two things. One was I thought I could learn something from it, slash check to see if I'm doing everything wrong. Yeah. Because like I had never even, I've had like podcast mobile, mogul, I've had like podcast mogul, Am I doing everything wrong? Conversations with my friend Roman Mars every once in a while. We'll yeah, be like boss talk. Or my friend Glenn Washington. And we'll be like, <laughs> "Are we? Are we doing? Are we okay? Like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Like, we'll do that once in a while." But, um, but mostly, I, I, I had never done that. I didn't really know uh, there. There were so few people that did my job, um, especially on Bullseye, the interviewing that kind of interviewing, and I didn't know any of them. Uh, and I had gotten some like encouragement from Ira Glass at one point. And, you know, there'd been like a few, which is tight. That was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> if you're ever going to get encouragement, I almost started crying. <laughs> but like uh, just now, thinking about how what it was like back then. But um, but like mostly, I had never like I had never had peers. It was just me in my apartment. You know what I mean? Not that I was peerless. I just didn't have any friends who did what I did. Right, right, right. And so. I just thought the turnaround is a chance to check in with everybody and make sure that I'm not doing this wrong. Make sure there's not some easier way to do it. And then the other half of it was, and also to make like a resource for people who were in the position that I was in when I finished school, which was I had a college radio show. And in the same way that many people now have a podcast, um, uh, we're, we're lucky that, that, you know, podcasting has democratized that to some extent, but um, I was like, I have a show, but besides that, like there's nobody, there was nobody at the college radio station who was going to teach me how to do anything. I mean, besides run the emergency alert system. Yeah. Um, and so I thought like I, the amount that I had learned from like a 30 page, this American life comic book that came out in like 1996, um, was everything that I knew when I was 20 through now. <laughs> and <laughs> And so I thought maybe I can just make a resource that people who are in a position like me can engage with, like I was in, can engage with. And also just like talk to people that I liked. Yeah. I mean, some there were some people that I didn't know whether I would like, like Larry King or um, Jerry Springer. There were a few people on the show, Katie Couric, that I like didn't really know that well or had never met before and was like, I don't know what this person is. But like... Ray Suarez or whatever, or, or Ira, um, I was just really excited to talk to that person that I like. And, and what did you learn most from, from that series? You know, it's funny. I think I probably learned the most from, if I was going to pick someone, it would probably be Larry King. Me too. Because Larry King is the one that I had the least, the, easily the person that I had the least experience with their work and the least emotional connection to. Um, I didn't have cable as a kid, so... I had never really watched. I mean, I you can't 
be an American who's 37 years old and not have some idea of who Larry King is. He's sort of a ubiquitous cultural pre- presence, you know, like Al Roker or something. But I didn't, I was never like a, oh, I got to turn on Larry King Live guy. <laughs> and also he had this famous reputation for like not having notes and not preparing, you know? And I thought, well, he's got to have something going on because he's Larry King, right? right yeah. I've got to be something here. And we went to his house out in Beverly Hills, <laughs> literally in Beverly Hills. And it was like literally the house that you imagine. It was like Usher's house from Cribs or something. It was like, <laughs> Baller. you know, like a giant front door, like one of those <laughs> roundabout driveways with the gates on either side and like a big white grand piano. And like, it was not a tasteful house. And, uh, but we went into his office and they sat us down in his office and his office is just like, you know, every, every inch of every, literally every inch of every wall is just pictures of Larry King with, you know, Mickey Mantle or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's like everything like, I would imagine. It's like, like here's JF- me and Nelson Mandela, <laughs> me and Mickey Mantle, Jr. me and Will, Will Chamberlain, <laughs> me and John F. Kennedy, me and Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so, and he just kind of sat down and the second he sat down, he was like so immediately present with me that it was almost awe-inspiring. And I immediately felt like I understood, and so like sincerely present, like he was actually listening to me. He wasn't, you know, somebody who is that media trained often will be kind of giving you a dog and pony show um, that is entertaining, but isn't necessarily about an actual connection to somebody. Right. And he was immediately connected to me the second he sat down and it challenged me to be present in interviews as an interviewer in a way that I may or may not always be. It's something that I've also learned a lot of from my friend Mark Marin, who hosts the show WTF. Um, You know, Mark's Mark's, uh, unique mindset, um, unique mind, uh, leaves him immensely emotionally present in all conversations, including just like when you're, when he's like at your house for a housewarming party and he's just like standing by the, uh, the you know, checks mix and like warily looking at everyone else in the room. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. like, hey, what's going on, Mark? And he's like, oh, I'm really going through this. You know, and you're like, okay, okay, it's a housewarming party, Mark. Um, but uh, like those, those two dudes are both so, um, so present in such a real way and so sincerely curious as well. Yeah. Like, I think that Larry King particularly, his curiosity is so vital and so sincere. He really wants to know about stuff. Yeah, I, he doesn't I, want to read about it. He wants to talk to you about it. I, I felt but that like, way as well. Like, you touched on it earlier about not being prepared sometimes for interviews. But sometimes that, that curiosity of not going in knowing anything is what helps him give a good interview. And I think, you know, that was also because I didn't and I didn't make any money from the turnaround. Uh, but because I was uh, because I was making the show for no money, I thought the only way I can actually successfully do this, given the fact that I host three other shows that are my living and I'm supposed to be running this company and stuff, is like I'm giving myself permission to not be prepared for these interviews. And I mean, in a way, I'm, I've like spent my life preparing for these interviews, obviously. These are yeah. people that in many cases I know and. Uh, in almost all cases I admire and so on and so forth. But like, I was like, I'm not going to 
get involved in a whole like anxiety spiral about preparing for interviews. So in a way, the experience of doing the interviews and the fact that they went well um, and were kind of fun and human in a way that an NPR interview isn't always necessarily. Um, I thought like, I, I, I was both learning by hearing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. About it and by practicing it, you know, and the thing that I was practicing is, you know, jumping before you see where you're going to land. Yeah. And presuming like, in my case, it was like, Oh, right. Like, I've been doing this for 17 years now. And so hopefully I have some idea of how to do it. Like, this is the only thing I've been doing for 17 years besides dating my wife, you know? <laughs> so, like, uh, I, I got it. I ought to have some skills in this department. So trusting that, trusting that kind of like being a present, curious human being would get me somewhere. Yeah in a conversation form was sort of the skill that I was practicing in doing that show. And what about Maximum Fun? Tell us about that. We're a, a podcast network that has existed for now uh, something like 11 or 12 years and um, is was originally just me. For a long time, it was just me. <laughs> Longer than I'd like. Um, but now is uh, about 30 shows uh, all comedy and culture shows okay um and you know they're sort of an extension of the things that i started the sound of young america for in college which is like i loved comedy in a very serious way when that was you know before all the pete holmeses and mark marins had made that accessible to the world i was a comedy obsessive how did you end up building you know building a network like what goes in into that uh, just a lot of incrementalism. I, I, there's nothing I can't do incrementally, yeah. uh, apparently. But like, I basically what happened is, I, the real turning point was in 2007, my wife started law school here in Los Angeles and I, we moved down together. And part of the idea was she got into a better law school down here. Part of the idea was if I'm really going to work in the entertainment industry, even if it's just doing this in, entertainment interview show, I got to do it in Los Angeles. I can't do it in San Francisco. Like, I, you know, San Francisco is my home, uh, but it will, you know, Dan and, and Tracy Chapman, Danny Glover, and Huey Lewis does not live there anymore, actually. I was about to say Huey Lewis, but like, <laughs> there are like four celebrities that live in Los Angeles, that live in San Francisco. But besides that, uh, they all live in LA or New York, right? So yeah. I was like, I got to be in LA or New York. And, um, and what happened was I got this. I got this deal with Public Radio International to do The Sound of Young America. I quit my job in San Francisco, moved to Los Angeles, and I looked at this revenue projection for the for The Sound of Young America from Public Radio. And this was I was like, I haven't made. I have a distributor. I have the same distributor as This American Life. Like it's on now. Like I'm yeah. a public radio host. You know, made Great. it. Great. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, eight thousand, twelve thousand, fifteen thousand, eighteen thousand, twenty-four thousand. What's that? 
It was like, oh, that's the projection of gross revenue each year over the next five years. Oh. I was like, oh, I was like, how do public radio shows exist? Because I, I'm just a guy and I can't make a whole, <laughs> like I was making the whole show by myself. And I was like, and I can't do this full time on that amount of money. I mean, not the amount at the beginning. I actually did it for a while on the amount toward the end. Yeah. Uh, there was a, there were a number of $18,000 years, but like, um, I, and so I was like, I got to figure something out. And what I figured out was I'm in LA. I'm going to get Jordan in here. My old college radio co-host. We're going to make a comedy show. Um, I had worked with this guy, Mal Sharp, who's a brilliant, uh, kind of radio put on artist from San Francisco in the sixties. And I knew that he had all his tapes. He had tapes from the sixties and it was like this very influential underground thing. His, the work he did in a duo called Coil and Sharp. And I was like, I knew he had the tapes. I was like, can I just make a podcast of these tapes? Um, I can't give you any money. And Mal to his uh, everlasting credit said, yeah, sure. You know, he's just that kind of guy. And I had some friends from San Francisco named Casper Hauser, who was sketch comedy group and their first book was coming out. And they were like, we'll give you $3,000 if you want to make a podcast of some of our sketches. Okay. That, that was our book marketing budget. We were going to buy, spend it on like, <laughs> you know, one business card ad in the back of Publishers Weekly or whatever, but you could have it for two months if you want to make 10 podcast episodes. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Sign, I'll sign do that, right? And I kind of realized that I had created this podcast network so that, and it's it's always been audience supported, uh, basically in order to piece together just not just enough money that I didn't have to get a job, basically. Like, it wasn't any real money. It was just like uh, the other choice would have been to go temp or do, I had been working as a, as a receptionist in San Francisco. And I was like, I don't, I, I w- think I could figure out how to make part-time receptionist money by full-time podcasting if I put enough things together, <laughs> mm. you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I never occurred to me to think like, I should create a business model for something that scales uh, and then have an exit strategy and all those things that I'm sure you've heard Guy Raz talk about with people. But because I was just, I was so focused on doing the creative part that I was just like, I'll just find enough money to be able to do that without dying. Yeah. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because like, you know, yeah, like my parents weren't giving me any money, you know, my parents didn't have any money to give me or whatever, you know. So it was like, it it was just these little tiny scrapsy, scrapsy pieces, you know, these little bits and bobs. And then a couple years later, I was like, man, there's this show that, that, that Jordan Jesse Go listeners love called Stop Podcasting Yourself. And they're not making any money. I should email them and ask if they want to get in on our like annual donation drive and we'll make money together, you know. And then piece by piece by piece. And then, you know, eventually I started having enough money to start developing shows that I was not, you know, that I was not, uh, you know, putting in my time capital into, you know, like instead of before, anytime I started a new show, part of the premise was Jesse works for free. And that's why the numbers work out. (laughs) Um, Like I finally got to the point where I could like hire other hosts to do things. And like, you know, it grew and grew and grew to the point where, you know, we now have 30 shows. And frankly, my shows, are not the biggest shows in the network. Um, you know, in some ways they form the identity of the network because I'm the owner and everything. But like really what it became about was these people who were making work that I admired and helping them find a situation where they could support that work and, and sort of make room for that work in their lives. Wow. At the end of every interview, I typically ask folks 
on OPP. Give me three shows that you are a fan of that you dig. Okay. I'm going to give you three that I have no involvement in and three okay. that I'm involved in because I, like I feel like it's cheating to go either way um, with that. So I'll start with ones I, I am, I do, I'm not involved in at all. I, I'm a big baseball fan and I really enjoy listening to a show called Effectively Wild. Um, which is just for hardcore baseball nerds. Okay. And there was a time in my life as a teenager where I thought I wanted to go into baseball management, essentially, professionally. Um, Like, that was my career goal. And that faded with Arts High School and UC Santa Cruz, where I, like, didn't know any sports fans. But um, recently, as the world has become a more terrifying place, uh, I have sort of retreated into this totally meaningless interest in sports. Um, I think it's like also like a dad thing, I think. <laughs> Once you become a dad, yeah, you get back in the sports. Yeah, you're just all of a sudden like the idea of just sitting and watching the baseball game is really alluring. <laughs> Specifically because baseball's boring somehow. Yeah, like yeah. baseball's boringness is part of its appeal to me, 100%. <laughs> I really love On the Media, which is uh, WNYC's long-running you know, you could call it like a media criticism and news show, but really it's about, um, it, it's the thing that I wish more public radio news was, which is to say that it is about synthesis of the ideas that are in the news. I think that on the media, which is a weekly show, kind of takes a critical eye at the news, both as a form and the way that it actually plays out in the world, um, that is really smart, really sharp, and um uh, really insightful, and I I really love that show. I very much admire Brooke Gladstone, who's uh, the uh, executive producer and host of that show, or co-host of that show. Um, a wonderful show. And then I really liked a show called. This is, uh, I mean, like uh, we're really getting into some nerd stuff here, but <laughs> there was a BBC show called "A History of the World in a Hundred Objects," Ooh. and I'm not a history guy. Um, you know, I'm, I am. So I want to hear okay. about this. It's what it is. Is it's hosted by an almost self parodic uh, curator from the British Museum. Um, you know, like a guy who's like full on like Alistair Cookie from Sesame Street, not even <laughs> Alistair Cook, um, but like a guy who's just like yes, and the, this, 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 this. <laughs> um, but e- each episode takes one object from the collection of the British Museum, which obviously encompasses all of world history through the plunders of empire yeah um and examines it as a lens through which to look at world history and it's beautifully produced um it's very pleasant to listen to it's not too long and it's like you learn a lot of actual things like i'm very allergic to the world of learning about things where you like what you're actually learning is an anecdote to share at a party Mm -hmm. um that kind of gee whiz learning um, which is a big part of the success of public radio. I understand that, but it's not for me. Like I, I'm always just like, no, I want to actually learn about something, not like learn a superficial counterintuitive something. It's a really thoughtful, bright show. And then on our shows, I'm going to go with, we have a new show called Heat Rocks that is sort of a passion project for me. It's hosted by uh, two folks, one of whom is a PhD sociologist who's a, a pop culture critic and historian and scholar, um, and the other of whom is a music supervisor, who she is the music supervisor for a lot of Ava DuVarnay's projects, including uh, she's a music supervisor for Dear White People on Netflix and has a bottomless 
knowledge of urban music. And they invite guests on every week to talk about an album that they think is a classic, right? Mm. And recently there was a really amazing episode with uh, Martin Perna, who's the leader of Antibalas, which is the big Afrobeat band um, that was the band for Fela on Broadway, among other things. And Martin talked about Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and talked about how hearing the demos for the song uh, made him understand like what were Michael Jackson's con- contributions to the record, like what things that he had previously attributed to songwriters or producers were actually about Michael's artistry. And like he was talking about how many of the songs Michael wrote in clave. So Martin is also uh, a very talented. I mean, he's talented in all kinds of areas of music, but he also has a Latin soul jazz band and he understood like the rhythmic underpinnings of it and stuff like that. And I just got to go on there this weekend and talk about uh, an album called uh, Steal This Album by The Coup, who are a rap group from Oakland that I grew up loving. And um, it was a real honor. So there's one, Heat Rocks. There we go. Uh, Beef and Dairy Network. Beef and Dairy Network is a comedy show that is presented as a podcast for the beef and dairy industry, uh, hosted by a gentle uh, Welsh Englander named Ben Partridge, who has a sweet BBC preventers, presenter's voice. Uh, but then he is just like talking to, it has its own insane world of arcana and weird rules and standards, and they say rich beef sausages a lot. Um, but it's so like elegantly presented, and the comedy is very dry. It's like the most amazing show maybe that we produce in our whole network. Like I just, I love Beef and Dairy. It's a really, really magical show. And then I I will say uh, Stop Podcasting Yourself, which is uh, just a two two guys talking with a third person show. Um, the two the two guys are two comedians, Dave Shumka and Graham Clark from Vancouver. Okay. Um, they've been doing the show now for more than 10 years. Uh, they've won Best Comedy Podcast in the Canadian Comedy Awards many times. I don't even know how many times at this point. And really it is, and they have a brilliant group of guests who are often but not always Vancouver comics, but a really kind of like vibrant, diverse, hilarious group of Canadians, plus occasional guest, guest spots from Paul F. Tompkins. And um, it's just like the most comfortable place to sit and be because they're so Canadian and that they're always trying to be polite to everyone, but they're also so funny and they never are selling it very hard because they're, they're polite Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) So you never feel like they're like making you laugh at something that you don't want to laugh at. Yeah. yeah. It's a very easy place to be. And I find myself again, as the world has become more terrifying and as my life has become more and more challenging with three kids and stuff, like the idea of some like really smart, really funny, nice guys who are being polite is like just, it's just a dream bath, you know? So I've been listening to a lot of Stop Podcasting Yourself. And uh, lastly, uh, Jesse Thorne, man, uh, what inspires you to podcast? Besides my mortgage? <laughs> I, since in, in all sincerity, like, so I do, I host three shows, right? And the reasons for each are kind of different. Judge John Hodgman, which I do with my friend John Hodgman, is a chance to connect with a guy who is kind of like a friend and also uh, he's very much like a friend in that he is a friend. Um, but he's a he's one of my closest friends and also it, 
at times in my career has been kind of a mentor to me because he's a guy who's, you know, five years older than me. And, and, you know, when I was still trying to figure out whether I could quit my job, he had just gotten a job on the daily show, you know? Um, and so for me, that's about spending this time with someone I really care about who lives 3000 miles away from me. Mm. Um, on bullseye, which is my NPR show. I mean, really what it's about is for me to be able to, it's just a, such an incredible joy and privilege to get to walk in and sit down and get to talk for an hour to Edie Falco or Bill Withers or Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker. I mean, Forrest Whitaker was a fucking magical dude. Man. I mean, that guy is a brilliant, brilliant artist. And you know, with an actor, it's it's uh, you can't rely on that fact that they will be an interesting person to talk to, um, it, even if they are a brilliant artist, because it's such an unusual kind of interpretive act that acting is. Yeah. Um, but a brilliant dude um, who gave me a lot of low-key shit for bringing up Battlefield Earth. <laughs> that was a great Not idea. unreasonably. Not unreasonably, <laughs> but still. I, what was I going to do? Not bring up Battlefield Earth, Forrest Whitaker? <laughs> Granted, I didn't talk about your Oscar-winning turn in Bird. Uh, but yeah, I needed to talk about uh, stupid man animals for a minute. Yeah, so that is like that, just that incredible privilege. Like almost everyone that I've always ever wanted to have on Bullseye at this point has been on. Like shout out to Randy Newman. Like let's get that thing booked. But like besides Randy Newman, and it turned out Bill Cosby is a serial rapist, so he got crossed off the list. Yeah, he won't make the cut. <laughs> yeah, but like, but like, if you made a list of people when I was seventeen or twenty-one or whatever that I really admire, or now I really admire, I got to talk to them. You know, I get to talk to George Saunders. You know, George Saunders is the wisest person I've ever talked to. <laughs> With all due respect to John Hodgman, like George Saunders is a is and he's brilliantly funny you know like i got to talk to bob odenkirk and david cross who changed my life when i was a kid i've gotten to talk to judd apatow several times he listens to the show i've gotten to talk to uh george clinton and bootsy collins i got to talk to <laughs> i got to talk to mavis staples you know oh, that was i beautiful. got to get a hug from a pointer sister <laughs> You know what I mean? Uh. For real. I got to talk to Big Boy. I mean, like, when we booked Big Boy on the show, I almost started crying. I was, like, so overwhelmed by the thought of talking to this guy, you know? Um, all these, Devin the Dude, like, just people that I just, like, loved and admired from afar, and I got to talk to them. So there's that. And then Jordan Jesse Go, that's a show that I'm doing, that I do with my friend of almost 20 years now. And he's the funniest person I know. And... Our lives have diverged in really significant ways, um, uh, you know, but I mean, there was, to some extent, it was always like this. Like, I was always a dad, let's be frank. But the it is so wonderful to have this really special person that I love and have a place where he and I go every week and we do this thing that we love doing together and... You know, I will sometimes listen to a Jordan Jesse go from last week, and I never remember what happens. It's a very fast-moving show with no premise, and I won't remember what happened in it because I'm so in there with the with Jordan and, the, and our guest. And I'll listen to it back, just like as a treat for myself, like four days later, and just be like, "Man, I am lucky I got to be there for that." Oh my, you know, like that's a great feeling. Sitting in there with like, you know, riffing with 
Aisha Tyler, like the most brilliant genius person there is on earth. Aisha Tyler's like shoots laser beams are brilliant out of her eyes. And like you listen back to it and you're like, oh God, I forgot Jordan said that. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and if I hear something like they have that feeling that where like I think of a joke and then I hear myself say it on the thing because I actually thought of it before when I was actually doing the show. Yeah. And just be like, oh, and I like that joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like laugh at a joke that I have forgotten that I had said and be like, man, good one, me. <laughs> Um, like that is just a joy. So it's, it's different things for different, uh, different purposes, but also, you know, like, uh, neither of my parents has any retirement savings and they're (laughs) both heading to their mid seventies. So the mortgage thing is survivor and provider. That inspires me. (laughs) 100%. Well, Jesse Thorne, I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being on the show and inviting me to your office. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Thank you all so much again for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye. Please be sure to check out Bullseye and his 10-part series, The Turnaround, by hitting the description in this episode. This episode was co-produced by Danielle Hogarty. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. Music for this episode was provided by Richie Quake. And lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, Silent Giants, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And I'll have the link to that in the description of this episode as well. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.